As Iyanla Van Zant once said, it's important that we share our experiences with other people. Your story will heal you and your story will heal somebody else. At Project Sleep, we believe that your stories matter, which is why we train people with sleep disorders on how to share their stories through our Rising Voices program. This Rising Voices podcast series features a variety of firsthand stories from people living with sleep disorders around the world. Each person's story offers unique and important insights. Welcome to Project Sleep's podcast. Project Sleep is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and advocating for sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. I'm your host, Julie Flygar. We're so glad you're here as we work together towards making sleep cool. On this podcast, all guests express their own opinions. While medical diagnoses and treatment options are discussed for educational purposes, this information should not be taken as medical advice. Each person's experience is so unique, which is why it's so important to always consult your own medical team when making decisions about your own health. If you haven't done so yet, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a Project Sleep podcast episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen so that we can reach more listeners and raise more awareness. Hello. We have a very special presenter. Sheila Coots is a retired pediatric nurse with an interest in health education and wildlife rehabilitation living in Nova Scotia, Canada. She was diagnosed with narcolepsy after 25 years of symptoms. And as a trained speaker with the Rising Voices of Narcolepsy program, she is sharing her story to educate others and help bring sleep disorders to the mainstream of society and medicine. Take it away, Sheila. So before uh, narcolepsy, before my diagnosis, and I guess I continue to be a very busy person, I was a pediatric nurse for 35 years, and I have two children who are grown, and I retired from nursing about two years ago. I can remember back as early as my teens complaining that I was tired. And when I would say I was tired, people would always say that's normal. We're all tired. And that included when I was having my children later on. So I uh, just accepted that that was normal, that people were tired. And I think it's worth noting that I come from a family of nappers. My symptoms began with a bang at literally at the age of 21. Something quite suddenly seemed to have changed for me, and I was at work, and I was sitting down at the nursing station with a coworker, and I was feeding an infant, and all of a sudden, I had this really heavy feeling in my head, just this really unusual feeling in my head. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that it wasn't normal and that something was going on, so I quickly handed the baby over to her. And as I did, my whole upper body became limp. I was sitting on a chair and I fell off the chair. I kind of, you know, went head first and the rest of my body straggled along and I ended up on the floor. I remember thinking, this is really strange. Uh, Why am I on the floor? And it didn't last. After about a minute or two, I got up and was shaken, but okay, and was back to work and back to work the next day. Shortly after this, maybe in the next days and weeks, I started noticing some other things like my brain felt really foggy. I was having trouble concentrating. I would have deja vu. So I would have these periods in the day where 
I would feel like I was just doing the same thing over and over again. And I didn't think much about that. I didn't even think it was related to the other strange experiences I was having, but certainly something was going on and it was, yeah, it was certainly not much fun. The core concentration, I would start to nap and this was really so that I could recharge and I didn't really consider it being tired. I just felt like, oh, I'm in a busy profession and this is what we do, you know, to kind of uh, recharge. My road to diagnosis was long. At the age of 23, I was diagnosed with seizures and I'd had many more episodes like this. And one that was really quite notable that I remember was a time when I was actually in charge on our floor and I was having a discussion with another nurse on another unit. And we were talking on the phone. She was on her unit. I was on mine. And it was, it became a little bit heated and I became angry. And I distinctly remember this feeling of anger kind of rising, this, this intense anger. And shortly after this, I was in the middle of a phone call. And shortly after this, I just crashed to the floor. I remember the phone hitting the floor with a loud bang. And I'm laying on the floor. I have no idea why I'm there, how I got there. I just know that I collapsed. This is in the busy in a busy nursing unit with a lot of things going on. Certainly things more important than, you know, what I'm doing down on the floor. But it was certainly very peculiar and it um, didn't last long. I was down on the floor for a minute or two. I got back up. I had my full strength back and certainly didn't know why this happened. So between the age of 20 and 45, I had several diagnoses and I was treated for epilepsy from 23 to 45, but there was, it was never really a clear picture. And there were many other things that would happen or symptoms I would have, and I would get another diagnosis. When I would get these diagnoses, it wasn't always something that would last. It might be something that I needed treatment with for three years, five years, and then it was kind of a non-entity or it didn't progress into anything else. And at age 45, I ended up seeing a new neurologist. And this was actually quite eventful for me and quite, uh, this was really the turning point for me. I had had one of my collapsing or spells and I ended up in the emergency room. And as anybody who's been to the emergency room or been in hospital many times can tell you, I had to tell my story again and again and again. And this particular time, I was speaking to a resident, and he asked me to tell my story from the beginning. And it was, it was very long. It was very convoluted. And I said to him that something, I was describing something that happened when I was 19. And he said to me, well, your chart says that this happened when you were 21. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I'm 45 now. How am I supposed to remember what happened when I was 19 versus 21. So I really felt like he didn't believe me or he was questioning me. And I really definitely felt misunderstood. And the good thing that came out of this, although I felt frustrated, was I did get a consult to another neurologist. And this was certainly something positive that came out of it. When I finally saw the neurologist, he 
told me that he felt that my story was a little bit peculiar. I was on my fourth anti-seizure med at this point, medication. And he said to me, I, I don't feel like increasing your medication again or changing it because there's something about you. I can't put my finger on it, but I feel like I feel like I need to do some more investigation. So he admitted me to the QE2 Health Sciences Center for a video EEG. And I figured I wouldn't see him because specialists are very busy. I thought, well, you know, I'll, a letter will be sent with the results to my doctor and I will get the results that way. So I was really quite surprised the next morning when he came into my hospital room. And of course, I'm all wired up. I've got these lovely EEG electrodes on and the glue and all that stuff. And he comes into my room and he didn't say anything. And he walks over to my bed and he has a very strange expression. And he grabs a chair and he sits down in front of me and he says, Sheila, has anybody ever asked you about sleep? And I was like, I don't know. I don't think so. And he said, well, I'm going to ask you about your sleep. How do you sleep? And I said, I sleep fine. And he said, well, I'm going to ask you a few more questions about sleep. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. So he said, do you ever nap? And when he said that, I actually had goosebumps. And I said, yes, I nap every day. And he said, what do you mean every day? And I said, well, I have some sort of little nap or rest every day. And he said, Sheila, I don't think you have seizures. I really think that you have a sleep disorder. So I was confused at this point. And he said, I was watching your EEG. And I was watching you with your friend last night who came to visit and you guys were playing cards. And the whole time you were playing cards and I'm watching your brainwaves, he said, you were having microsleep. And I looked at him and I said, microsleep, what is that? He said, it's essentially you are having little spells of sleeping all the time, like quite frequently. I'd never heard of microsleep, so I was a little bit um, put off and, and didn't know what to make of it. He said, essentially, I think that you don't have seizures. What you have is a sleep disorder. I think you have narcolepsy. And I remember looking at him and being totally dumbfounded. I knew very little about narcolepsy, basically only what I'd seen in the media or on TV. And I was like, but I'm thinking I'm not falling asleep all the time. That's all I knew. So he told me he was going to take me off of my seizure meds. And I was very concerned with that. And he said, don't worry, we'll look after you but I'm taking you off your seizure medication and I'm getting you into the sleep lab as soon as I can. So three weeks later, I was at the sleep lab and I had a sleep study and I met my now sleep physician and I was diagnosed with narcolepsy. It is a chronic neurological disorder of the sleep-wake cycle and it affects one in 2,000 people. And essentially, this is about 200,000 Americans or 3 million people worldwide. And I was really surprised at that statistic that there were so many people. There are five main symptoms of narcolepsy. Everybody is a little bit different. Um, and I actually had all five of them when at the time of my diagnosis. So the first one is excessive daytime sleepiness. And this is very striking sleepiness. This is 
somewhat sudden, striking, extremely tired feeling. And it can be compared to somebody without narcolepsy being awake for 48 to 72 hours. And it comes through the day, you know, periodically. And this is what somebody with narcolepsy deals with on a regular basis. Cataplexy is a, a very striking, sudden weakness in your muscles. It can be one or more muscle. It can be all of your muscles. And it can actually make you fall down, as happened with me. So when I look back on my stories, those were actually cataplexy spells. So that was weakness. And cataplexy is usually associated with a strong emotion. When I met my sleep doctor and we started going back over many, many years and looking at when I had my spells or my events, like the one I had when I was arguing with somebody on the phone, many of them were with strong emotions. Excessive daytime sleepiness is a little tricky for me because my sleepiness does not look like you think of when you think of sleepy. So I never told people that I was having issues with sleep. For me, it presented, like I was explaining, with a brain fog, difficulty concentrating, having frequent deja vus, issues with my memory, and just generally feeling foggy. So that was something, certainly, that I learned about myself along the way. Hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations are hallucinations that happen when you're falling asleep or you're waking up. and they tend to happen, or, or they can happen, I should say, with sleep paralysis. I did not have them together, but I had many hallucinations over the years. Hallucinations can be tactile, so something that you feel, it can be something that you hear, or it can be something that you see. Mine, for the most part, were auditory or things that I heard. And my son may be watching this and he will laugh, but I used to have the hallucination that my son was coming in late all the time and I would hear the back door banging and I would hear him running up the stairs and running down the stairs all hours of the night. So one night at about three in the morning, I had checked several times and he was in his bed and I, this one night at three, I was convinced at three in the morning that somebody had come in our house and slammed the door. So I get down, I come downstairs, I go to the back door and I'm standing there by the door and I look at the dog. This is a dog who barks when anybody comes near our house, never mind knocking at the door. I looked at the dog and I said, you didn't hear that, did you? And of course he didn't because it was a hallucination. It actually wasn't there. So I went back to bed and I stopped getting up for them. I haven't had those for years, thankfully. Sleep paralysis is when you're either drifting off to sleep or you're waking up and in the morning and you can't move. So you're awake, um, you're aware of your surroundings, but your body is unable to move for several seconds or several minutes. I had this probably four or five times in the couple of years before my diagnosis, but I haven't had it since. Disrupted nighttime sleep is something that I'm really surprised that I'm dealing with now, but my sleep doctor thankfully warned me that this may be the issue. She had said that people with narcolepsy have issues with their sleep being disrupted. And like in the, the beginning of the presentation, it's a disruption of our sleep cycle. So it's the timing of our sleep that's an issue. And I certainly have that now. I have trouble staying asleep. And I'm sure that as I get older, that's not going to get better. 
because our sleep does change. So there are two types of narcolepsy. There's narcolepsy with cataplexy, which is the type that I have, and narcolepsy without cataplexy. Narcolepsy with cataplexy is believed to be caused by a lack of hypocretin or orexin. And this is a neurotransmitter. So it's a chemical in our brain. And what it does is it keeps us alert and it also regulates our sleep so that we have a normal wake sleep cycle and we can sleep at night. And people with narcolepsy without cataplexy, they don't have the same issue with hypocretin and it's not as clear what causes their symptoms. So in order to be diagnosed, I had to have a sleep study, and this involves 24 hours at the sleep clinic under the management of a sleep specialist. And the first part of it is the overnight part, and it's a polysomnogram. And that involves them monitoring your EEG or your brain waves, your um, heart rhythm, and a few other things overnight. The daytime part is called a multiple sleep latency test, and this involves having naps during the day. And what they're doing is they're trying to see if you, well, do you sleep in your naps? But also, more importantly, do you go into REM sleep as you're falling asleep or in a brief nap? And people with narcolepsy will go into REM or rapid eye movement very quickly. People without narcolepsy will not. So my life with narcolepsy is very good. I have no complaints. It's definitely brighter with the diagnosis. It's much better to know what you're dealing with. I had many, many years where I would have so many different specialist appointments and tests, and I was always struggling to kind of keep balance. But now that I know what I have, my symptoms are much more clear to me, and I understand what's going on. So the treatment for narcolepsy is, it's, it's different for everybody. There's, it's not one shoe fits all or one size fits all. Wake-promoting drugs or stimulants to combat the daytime sleepiness are very, very important. And nighttime medications, if you understand kind of the underlying cause of narcolepsy, nighttime medications are important to make sure that we sleep all night. And this will help with some of the daytime issues such as sleepiness and cataplexy. Antidepressants for cataplexy can work very well for some people. That's certainly what I've been using and thankfully it, it uh, is still working. And schedule daytime naps. So naps, when we think of naps, we think of something as a luxury, uh, or I certainly used to, as something that you do because you want to, you just want to relax. For people with narcolepsy, quite often a nap is a necessity. And for me, if I want to have a productive day or if I have things planned, I have to schedule my nap. And I can't really go through more than five or six hours without having a nap. So I do something for five or six hours. I plan that nap. It may be only 15, 20 minutes, but it is very, very helpful. And social support, when I was first diagnosed, I got some information, of course, from my sleep doctor. And then I started doing my own homework and trying to find, are there other people out there? And quickly, I knew there was. And looking at support systems for myself. Being a nurse, I knew from talking to other people that reaching out to people who were going through something similar could be immensely helpful. So I quickly ran into the Narcolepsy Network and Project Sleep. And it was actually the hashtag Narcolepsy Not Alone that grabbed me first about Project Sleep. And then I later on went into looking into the Rising Voices of Narcolepsy program. 
I do share my narcolepsy with other people, and I do this because it makes life simpler. Many ambulance drives, I've had too many times where I've had to explain to people when I'm in the middle of, you know, not feeling my best. So if people know ahead of time, I just find it simpler. I think that one thing that I've learned through this experience is that even if you don't understand your symptoms, it's really important that you share them. There were times that things were happening to me that perhaps I didn't have the words to describe, or I thought that people would think I was stupid, or I was crazy, or what is wrong with her? Because my story didn't always make sense. And I remember getting looks from healthcare professionals like, what? And I think that if you're feeling this, but you know that this is your truth, and this is what actually happened, you need to take a deep breath step back and just tell your story again. And for me, I was really determined that I would just keep telling my story until eventually it made sense to somebody and I would get some answers. Raising awareness is important because it takes about eight to 15 years on average for people to get diagnosis of narcolepsy. So that's from the beginning of symptoms to when they're diagnosed. For me, it was 25 years, and that's me going back to when I was 21. But if I go back a little further, there were definitely times in high school where I think that things were starting to happen. I would want to think that I could nap on the way home, like I would have heavy legs and things like this. And when I look back, I think I was probably having some symptoms back then. Under 50% of people with narcolepsy are currently diagnosed, and that is a staggering amount. I think. Narcolepsy can occur in children and it frequently happens or begins in teens. So I think that it is a pediatric issue. And I think that the pediatric community needs to be aware of the fact that this is a pediatric concern as well. That is my story. And if you have any questions for me, you can obviously go through Project Sleeper Julie, but there is an email that is narcolepsyhalifax at gmail, and uh, you can reach me there. Great job, Sheila. You had me welling up in tears, and I've heard you oh. before, but there's just still something every time about hearing the process. And um, I think when you shared about that, if you don't quite understand your story, but it's still important to tell someone, like that is just so important. So I just love that that's one of your key messages and you had me like getting teary. So, um, oh, wow. so just, um, thank you again. And guys, writing questions, we're going to try to get a few over if we can, but I'm going to start Sheila, you were a pediatric nurse. Yeah. Uh, and I believe, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but were you in neurology as well? I was, and I'd actually had several of these cataplexy attacks in front of neurologists. And uh, yeah, it's, it's mind boggling. They actually, once they found my diagnosis, were extremely supportive. But it's ironic that I had most of them at work. And that was because I couldn't rest at work. I was constantly, you know, moving and on the go and I would just hit the ground. And, you know, it just is so amazing to think that neurologists are out there and seeing the symptoms and not even recognizing that that could yeah. be And to be fair, you know, I, I keep thinking about how relatively new the sleep science is. And my symptoms started in 1983. That first event was 1983 or 84. 
And even compared to when I retired, I don't think sleep is on the radar, not, not in the same way it is now. So I, I kind of cut them slack um, for that and hope that uh, things will catch up. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's totally true because I always try to remind people, I think they discovered REM sleep like in 1960 something. Yeah. yeah. Before that, we didn't even know that REM sleep existed. And just to think that how much progress we're making now and better understanding sleep. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, all, all tides are rising. <laughs> so we just have to, hope. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm not anyone in particular, but I just think it's so fascinating to think of even, uh, it just always reminds me of the importance of this work and like the work that you're doing by raising awareness and going back to your own, your own group and, and sharing yeah. your story there because, um, there's so many people to be educated. All right. We have a question. It's uh, wonderful that your friends and coworkers are so accepting and that you're comfortable sharing. Did you ever find it difficult to share your story? Yeah. <laughs> so I remember one of the first times I told a manager um, about my narcolepsy, she told me that it was my story and I need to keep it to myself. And she said it in a way that I, I almost felt like she was uncomfortable talking about it. But I didn't want to have a cataplexy. And this was further on when I was fairly well controlled, but occasionally have little breakthroughs. And she said, no, you don't need to tell your, you, you shouldn't be telling your coworkers. And for me, it wasn't just for support. I did not want the disruption in my work life. If I had a little cataplexy attack, I didn't want somebody calling an ambulance for me to go over and wait seven hours and then say, See ya, you have narcolepsy, <laughs> like go home, we know what you have. And that happened to me many, many times. So as I got telling people, as I started telling people, it got easier and easier and easier. And I did enough education that I could explain things easier too, right? Like I, I made sure I understood what I was, you know, explaining so that people wouldn't be worried. That's very good. I think that my journey was similar, just like starting slowly. And then, yeah, just knowing the naysayers or those negative voices are not everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We have one more question. How do you find an audience for your story? Um, so the last couple of times I, I'm vocal. So I'm a bit of an extrovert and I'm out there telling people, right? Because I just feel like people need to know, right? And some of it might come from a little bit of embarrassment because, you know, I worked in neuro for many years and I went to so many conferences on the brain and I didn't know. So if I didn't know about sleep disorders, then there's lots of people who don't. So I started reaching out to a few teachers and then that I knew, and then it spread. So they would tell, they would say, oh, you're having this. Oh, I know this person who does these sleep talks and would it fit in with your curriculum? I haven't gone the route of like going to the school board or, or going anything really um, big yet, maybe partly because I'm afraid to, but I've just, it's just been word of mouth so far. Yeah. And it's actually a good question for me to point out too. I think people might think that with the rising voices that once you have the presentation, then, you know, you'll just be able to go out there and have all these great speaking engagements. And the truth is, is that getting the speaking engagement is in, in and of itself a process. And we do try to give people support, but I mean, one of the biggest support uh, tips that I can give from personal experience and um, from our research is to use your own local community you know, Sheila having uh, been a nurse and, and, and knowing her own community and, and getting those. And 
definitely, like Sheila said, that it always grows um, once people like hearing your message and that you won't know. Weren't you telling me, Sheila, recently that um, some people had come back to you, like maybe you had told them or you told even a relative of theirs like six months ago or something, and and now they thought of something, a way that you could present? Um, yeah, I, I can't remember specifically what that was, but um, that wouldn't surprise me. I've had a few contacts on Facebook. Um, people I haven't talked to for years contact me and say, oh, could you do a presentation with their group? I know your history and I've seen you, you know, um, a few things on Facebook that you've written. It's very organic. A lot of it just comes through people I've known or people who know people who know people. Oh, I know who it was. It was actually a, I went to a anesthesia workshop as a patient uh, voice last year in Toronto. And the girl that agreed to fly with me, we didn't know each other, but we were hooked up with the org by the organizers and we really hit it off. And then she contacted me because her daughter went to King's College and over by Dalhousie and she said, oh, my daughter is looking for somebody to do speaking with some university students. And that's what you're thinking of, Julie. I just remember. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's very roundabout. But yeah. yeah. Oh, we have another question for you. I know it's getting late there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is from someone who's about to graduate from nursing school. Uh, how okay. do you as a nurse with cataplexy attacks and the excessive exhaustion when working? Yeah. Okay. So I think in a lot of ways, nursing was maybe the perfect job. Um, it's really busy and it's, you're, you know, it kept me awake, but once my narcolepsy started getting to the point that it, I was having more and more spells, it certainly interfered with my job. Had I known about narcolepsy at the beginning, I think I could have planned a little better. Having said that, I think that there's a lot of areas in nursing that it might be difficult and, you know, you're going to have to navigate the best way to kind of, to deal with that in terms of, do they know, or, you know, should they know or not know, because everybody is a little bit different. I ended up working in clinics from the age of 32 and I worked in orthopedics and neurology, neurosurgery, every doctor I worked with knew about my narcolepsy and every single one of them and my nursing colleagues were very supportive. Um, I think a clinic job is ideal. I don't know where you are and we're asked the question, um, but if you can get a day job, it's certainly helpful. Thank you again, Sheila. Um, oh, you're I welcome. Good night, everybody. All right. Bye. The Project Sleep Podcast is produced by Carver Sound Productions. For more information on podcast production services, visit carversoundproductions.com.